Quick, wake the neighbors. Massacre Radio just posted a new episode. Yes! Thank you for joining us on this, the 29th installment. As you might have guessed, I am your host, Members Only Dave. And on today's show, we have a big, big, big time guest. As artist Esham is here to talk about everything from his Detroit Lions to the first time he met Mike E. Clark, as well as his latest album titled Purgatory, which was released in July of last year. We get into all that and more coming up in just a few short moments. But first, I wanted to take this opportunity to check the Massacre Radio voicemail, which you two can call and leave a message at 440-941-8585. Let's see if there's anything new. We'll find out together. There are no new messages, dickhead. Well, I think that just about answers my question. Hey, stick around because coming up next, Esham joins me. Don't you even think about touching that dial. Come on! This is Massacre Radio. Hey, joining me now on the Massacre Radio hotline, which you too can call at 440-941-8585. He's an indie pioneer from the east side of Detroit that paved the way for artists like Insane Clown Posse, Kid Rock, Eminem, and beyond. It's none other than Esham. Welcome to the program, man. Thank you for your time. How are we doing today? I'm all right. What up, though, to everybody out there in the C-Town? How you doing today? Not too bad. Not too bad. I bet you're feeling pretty good seeing as how your Detroit Lions made it all the way to the NFC Championship game. And even though they lost, you know, it's been a long time coming for that team and that city. I'm sure it had to feel pretty good to be along for that ride all season. Oh, yeah. The last time they was in it, I dropped my first album. That was probably like 35 years ago. So, yeah, everybody in the city is pretty excited about the Lions, including myself. So, yeah, go Lions. So let's get into it here. Now, like I mentioned in the intro, you've been in the game now for 35 years, basically. And there's a lot that I want to get to in the short time that I have you on. And we'll get to your latest album, Purgatory, which was released back in July of 23. But first, one of the things that kept coming up in my research was how you really don't like being referred to or called a legend. You're very humble in that respect. But even if you aren't seeking that validation, it still has to feel good, no? Well, I mean, it feels good for others to say it. For for me to say it, I, I just would seemed like I was um, just blowing my own horn or something like that. And the the term gets thrown around real loosely. You know, I've, I've heard people call themselves legends that, um, you know, just might have had a demo tape out or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just, I would save that uh, that tag for, you know, the Michael Jacksons, the princes of the world, and, and people that probably have, um, you know, accumulated more success than I have in the music business. So that's probably why I don't consider myself a legend you know what i mean yeah i totally see where you're coming from because it's like you said it's different when you're the one saying it about yourself absolutely so you grew up listening to led zeppelin acdc the sex pistols and many many others but i guess my question here is what was it about the led zeppelins the acdc's like i mentioned that really resonated with you during your youth well when i came out you know there wasn't too many rappers that was doing you know what the rockers were doing you know i was really heavily influenced by the led zeppelins of the world the iggy pops and you know just all the creative things that they were doing with music and with instruments and things like that and when i was younger i would sample a lot of those records because um i didn't know how to play them and i didn't have you know musical friends at the time so uh, those were some of my earlier influences i just 
like music all the way around. I, I think um, music shouldn't have a category. Like there shouldn't be no categories of music. Music music should just be playing. So um, with the old rock legends and things like that, I've always um, just tried to um, be like the greats, man. You know what I mean? They're just the people that came before me. And in my time and in my day, it wasn't that many rappers out, especially wasn't even people doing the independent thing. For me to be listening to those type of records and getting influenced like that, that's probably why my music is infused with rock and roll, pop, hip hop, just every type of music that I can get my hands on or sample or just be involved with. So those things influence me to be creative, to be different. You know, I, I um, pride myself on originality. You know what I'm saying? I want to do things that other people haven't done. And I feel like up until this point, you know, that's what I'm still doing. People can't really figure my music out or they can't put me in a category or a box. And it's just been this thing where um, I just operate outside the box of music and the music industry in a whole, you know. Yeah, and I feel like anymore these days, rappers and artists blur the line between individuality and originality. Absolutely. I mean, people can get inspired by something without copying it. That's just what I'm saying about the Led Zeppelins and the Iggy Pops or maybe the MC5s. Like, I was heavily inspired by their music, but out of respect for them, I would never try to copy or duplicate what they've done. I would always try to put a spin on their recipe, you know, add my own seasoning to it, and um, hopefully come up with something new. So I got to ask you about this because we all know Detroit has been a major player throughout the history of music, but just as it pertains to your era when you were coming up even, you had artists like ICP, Kid Rock, and Royce the 5'9", even, Eminem, Awesome Dre and the Hardcore Committee, all those guys. What is it about Detroit and that area that just pumps out immense talent and the overall sound that goes with it? Well, I think it's uh, the lack of people not being able to get into the industry. I mean, in Detroit, it's a blue-collar town. Um, people are hard workers, so we have to work a little harder than everybody else in the industry, you know what I mean? When I was coming up, like I say, before before me, the only guy that was kind of like putting out records himself was Barry Gordy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so after he left, you know, there was a hole to fill. And um, I had no idea what I was doing when I was a kid, man. We started this when I was 13 years old. So I definitely made a lot of mistakes. But um, in making those mistakes, I learned a lot. You know, I couldn't tell people what to do, but I could tell them what not to do. And that's pretty much how my, <laughs> my career has been going. You know what I mean? So... I think people come up with music there because, um, you know, they're just hungry, man. And they've been hungry for a long time. And with the added attention of the Lions and people like Eminem and K-Rock just blowing up hugely around the world, the eyes of the world are looking at Detroit now and they're seeing what I've always saw, which is there's a lot of talented people there. There's a lot of people there with stuff to say. And, um, you know, I think that's what the world is getting a taste of right now. What or who were maybe some of the artists production-wise that really got you hip and crafted your production style, would you say? Well, I mean, definitely like, you know, people like the Bomb Squad, Hank Shockley, even Jay Dilla to a point. You know what I mean? Jay Dilla was a great producer, come from Detroit. He produced for a lot of, you know, major acts. Just being around people like that and just getting to... um it was almost like my alumni, you know, but just gelling with people like that and just being creative in the circle of music that was in Detroit. I mean, Detroit, it's a funny kind of place, man. It's like crabs in a barrel, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like um, back in those days, people would basically, I, I don't want to say they would do anything if they thought they were going to, you know, get on in the music business. 
So, I mean, I think, um, yeah, that's just what it is. Like, I had a lot of people that was in there doing a lot of good things. And I just studied people, man, and studied their music, studied the way they sample things and put things out. And, of course, I was experimenting myself. You know, when I got a hold to a, a Roland, I forgot the, the model number, but I got my first sampler, and I just went nuts, man. And all I had was rock and roll records. You know, I didn't, there was, I didn't have no rap records, so I was just sampling crazy rock and roll records and, and the rest is kind of like history. I think the way I produce music, it helped a lot of people, you know, with their samples and things like that. You know, the Kanye Wests of the world. You know, I was, you know, dropping samples in my music like Through the Wire before Through the Wire. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I think I inspired these people. But, you know, on a deeper level, maybe some, some of the people might say, hey, you know that guy down there? He inspired me. But it's always been a thing between the majors and the independent people. So I think if you're on a major label, they kind of they kind of shun independent people a little bit, and because they're kind of like regurgitating their ideas. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It yeah. just seems like you know people haven't um, really. I don't want to say gave me my props for production, or you know just credited me for a certain production style, or even the sound of Detroit music today, like. The sound of Detroit—that's my sound. You know what I mean? I, there, there wasn't no sound before me. You know what I mean? So, people got into making music, and whether I influenced them directly or indirectly, you know, all roads lead back to each other. You know, I was the first to do it. You know, kids these days have no idea how good they have it because producing wasn't as easy as it is today. You didn't have copy and paste. You had to actually know what you were doing and come up with formulas and stuff, you know. You didn't even have Pro Tools or anything. And I think that a lot of the limitations you had back in the day and that overall rawness lends itself to your sound. No, absolutely, man. I mean, I had I didn't have the best equipment. Actually, you know, if, if I could grade it, I had like some of the one tier up from the worst equipment. You know what I had to duct tape my shit to, get, to actually get it to work, man. And um, like you say, there wasn't no copy and paste. You know, you had to actually put a, a needle on a turntable and get those B, BPMs right. And, you know, you just had, it, it was a little more organic than it is today. You know, they took a lot of the things away from musicians that made them actually uh, individuals you know that they took their you know originality away from them and everybody kind of sounds the same because they're they're using the same techniques you know they're not um doing nothing that uh hasn't been done before you know I think that's actually a really good point you just made there. Now, the style of music that you make, you call it acid rap, and I know you're not really a fan of it being categorized as horrorcore, but even if you don't see yourself as a horrorcore pioneer, wouldn't you at least agree and acknowledge that what you did with the whole acid rap thing, that was a catalyst for the horrorcore genre as a whole? I mean, absolutely. I mean, you got to realize that back in those days, we were selling more records than the major record companies. So they had to get in on the act. So they created this thing called horrorcore. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To cash in on what we were doing. You know, a lot of people would say even artists like Eminem, whose name is Marshall, he spelled his name with an E and ended it with an M. When he first came out, he said, I'm a cross between Manson, Esham, and Ozzy. But people don't want to put those things together and say, damn, Esham might have influenced Eminem so much that this is a part of his success. He might have took a little bit of his formula and went out there with Dr. Dre and them and, and blew up, you know. I credit Eminem for a lot for taking the music far. And um, that is that is great, you know what I'm saying? But as an independent artist, I still um, 
struggle with some of the same things and have the, some of the same fights that I do against major record companies that, um, you know, just pillage the, the underground and independent artists of their ideas. Now, I have to ask you about Boomin' Words from Hell. I always heard that it was recorded in one day, but then I later found out that it wasn't just one day. It was a 10-hour studio block. Tell me a little bit more about how that whole 10-hour session went down and what it was like plowing through it all in a day's work. Well... I had um, some pre-production equipment before I even knew what pre-production was. So before I went to that studio, I already had my rhymes and my beats already laid down for me playing on a keyboard or just me programming a drum machine. So when I went in the studio, I already had an idea of what I wanted to do. So I made it happen within that 10-hour block. There was a guy in the studio named Mikey Clark, (laughs) who was a student (laughs) at the time. He, He was the first guy I ever worked with inside of a studio. But he was there doing the um he was hitting record you know what i'm saying and he was getting all that stuff together but actually laying down the tracks and just getting it man i went in there in a 10-hour block because that's all we could afford we were young kids you know we had no idea what we were doing we were just trying to do something to try to make it out of the ghetto and just show people that it could be done you know against all odds if you got some idea or you know you want to pursue your something in music you know, just do it. Like a lot of people said no to us. A lot of doors got slammed in our face. And if we didn't do it ourselves, it would have never, you know, just got out there to the public, man. So that 10 hour block is um, how the first album was made. So I went in there, we made it and then we just put it out. You know what I mean? Like, like I say, we were kids. We, We didn't know what we were doing. You know what I'm saying? We had no idea what we were doing would spark a culture. You know what I'm saying? And just I didn't even know that I was at the time I was just making a rhyme, but I wasn't just making a rhyme. I was making a genre. You know what I'm saying? So this thing turned into a whole genre from that 10 hour block where you get artists who, you know, have the same type of style like Tech 9 or the ICPs of the world, the M&Ms of the world. Anybody like that, it showed me that my formula was actually successful because I've seen some of my work in other people's art. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the crazy thing to me is how everything you did in that 10 hours was a catalyst for an entire genre like we talked about. I mean, that album still sounds fresh even today. And I think that speaks volumes about what you truly accomplished in that 10 hours, you know? I'm And I'm grateful for that. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess it was all in God's plan. And um, he still got a plan for me, you know, I'm still moving forward. I mean, that's probably why my new album is called Purgatory, because in a sense, I feel like that's where my career has been in a certain purgatory you know i could go to hell or i could go to heaven you know what i mean i'm just in this waiting room and the concept for purgatory i thought it was just uh it was a cool concept that it no matter what you did or what you believe or how people thought about you when you died if you was in that waiting room of purgatory if one person that was alive said a prayer for you and said you know what I hope Esham goes to heaven or I hope, you know, this person goes to heaven. Then you would, in fact, get out of purgatory and and go to heaven instead of waiting in a, you know, a stagnated state of forever, I guess, you know. Esham is my guest today on Massacre Radio. We're going to take a brief time out here and be back with more after this. Spare some change for the homeless, please. I'm hungry. Sir, can you spare some change for the homeless? No, I'm sorry, I don't carry cash, but I do have this radio I can give you. I've been walking around listening to it all day, but there's still some juice left in these batteries. Here. I know nothing about radio. I'm hungry. Here, you keep searching and I'm sure you'll find something. 
Hey, wouldn't you know it, two dimes and a penny. Here, pal, consider this your lucky day. Thank you, thank you. We're back here on Massacre Radio. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Isham. His new album is called Purgatory, and we're going to get to that in just a few here. I have a couple more questions about the early days, and then we can move on. I want to know about the first time you met the insane clown posse, because for me at least, hearing you on Carnival of Carnage and the production that you contributed, that was my first exposure to your work. Just talk a little bit about what those guys were like back then, and working with Mike E. Clark, who you've previously mentioned. Well, I mean, those guys were just coming up. They didn't necessarily have a, have a sound. They were called the inner city posse when I met them. I put a record out called Homie Don't Play, which I was the first guy to ever paint my face and rap as a clown. That's right. I was the first wicked clown, right? So after I met Mikey Clark and we had spent that 10 hours in a studio time, there was these kids called inner city posse who was making a rap record and they wanted, I was at a studio that Mike was at doing something for a show or whatever I was doing. And they were booking some time and they asked Mike Clark to ask me if I would get on their track. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I just, I I was like, cool. You know, I, I, when I met them, they were cool guys. I mean, I gravitated toward them because I seen the struggle, you know what I mean? And I come from the struggle. So I know what it's like to try to do something and you want a little help. And I just felt like, I was in a position to help somebody, so I did. That's what I was taught all my life. You know what I'm saying? If you're in a position to help somebody, you should. So that's what I did. Later down the line, they came to me and they said, hey, man, can we call ourselves the Wicked Clowns? Because my whole thing was the Wicked shit and this and that. You hear what I'm saying? So I was like, cool, man. You know, it's almost like I saw the future, you know, and I, you know, realized that along the way I might need some help. And once I helped them, you know, they were able to get in distributors. They was able to sell their records. They was able to get accounts with, you know, when distribution was like that. And there were record stores out there, you know, <laughs> they was they was able to push their product in the record store. And even the distributors would call me and ask me, like, who's these kids? You know, should we pick their stuff up? And I'm like, yeah, pick it up. They're cool guys. You know, that's back when Alex Abbas was working with them. And, you know, it was just a whole big family thing, you know. And and before I knew it, just my kind gesture of helping them, you know, on their journey to success, I I don't I don't take credit for their success, right? Mm-hmm. But I say on the road to their success, there was a fork in the road, and I might have steered them in the right direction. You know what I mean? And uh, on that same road, my car might have broke down ahead of them, <laughs> right? You know, and then I seen them, and they picked me up along the way and gave me a ride. You know what I'm saying? So. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think, you know, that's how it should be, man. I, I just helped them in the earlier days. The rest is history, man, because they went out and, you know, with the same genre, they gold and platinum records. I mean, the rest is history. It's just, like I say, a culture of music that's out there that's not rock, that's not pop. That's It's hip-hop, though. It's all of those things, mm-hmm. but it's called the wicked shit. But that music went all over the world. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, and this was before the internet. As wonderful as the internet is, you know, and all the great things that come with it, it also tore the bottom out of music and, you know, all the all the mom and pop stores, all the chain record stores. Like, it did damage to the music industry, too, as, as much as it helped it. You know what I'm saying? Well, that kind of leads me into my next question here, because I wanted to ask you about the personal connection between fans and the artists. This might sound wild for the younger listeners of the show, but back in the day, fans would have to go into a record store to actually buy albums. So that personal thread, that connection in that way is missing these days. But how much do you think that matters? 
it, it matters a lot. You know, it still matters to this day. And, and, and just like you say, um, the Internet took that organic experience from people, you know, to actually go on a record store and spend time in a place that was all music, all different kinds of music. You, 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 you're missing out on the actual experience of buying a physical unit, you know. And then it was hard to get people to buy your records. Like even back in those days, we were making provocative and thought-provoking music. So people were captivated by our album covers, which I was influenced by the Meatloafs, the ACDCs of the world, and all that dark imagery. Mm -hmm. So I was that person that put that into rap and put that on my album covers. So before the internet, you could go in a record store. And if my record was up there, because most of my records were sold in brown paper bags under the counter, and you had to ask for them by name. You know what I'm saying? Because, yes, man, because of the imagery. You know, somebody go in there and see my album cover, Kill the Fetus, and instantly they're like, what is this? You know what I'm saying? So we were making music, you know, to get people, like I say, provocative music to get people involved. And it was just like on site. As soon as they seen it, it was a feeling that they got that, hey, man, this this might be some, some off the wall stuff. I might be actually entertained by this. So that's that's how I did it, man. You've basically been an independent artist your entire career. And back in the day, I know you had to work just a little bit harder to get stuff done and sell records. You know, for example, I always heard the story about how ICP would show up to high school parking lots after school was let out just to sell tapes out of their trunk. You know, that sort of stuff. But as for you, talk about some of the things that you did in terms of hustling a little harder to move albums or tapes. Well, I mean, I was um, the master at street promotions, man, like uh, guerrilla marketing. We used to put up posters like, you know, like I would see movies coming out. Whoever had a movie coming out, you know, Freddy Krueger, they would put up these big ass movie posters all around the city. Right. So I adapted that format to my program. So I got big ass movie posters of whatever record I was coming out with, you know, Boomer Words from Hell, Kill the Fetus, whatever. And I would just plaster the city with it, man. I did it so much that the mayor called us. (laughs) It was like we were vandalizing, but if it was an abandoned building or let's just say it was an abandoned McDonald's or something, I would go and cover the whole McDonald's like a Christmas present. And (laughs) you know what I'm saying? So it would be like, fortunately, because my, my records were selling, like I actually was selling units. Like I'm still selling units to this day. So back then, I'm selling mad units so I could afford to buy posters like that. But every time you see one of the big movie posters up there, that was a dollar and fifty up there on that wall. You know what I'm saying? But you know, I was it was like it was like paying for advertisement. You know what I mean? Because you ride past this big structure and all you see is, you know, the Esham stuff on there. So that's that's what I was doing. That's what I mean by working hard and I took that tactic into other cities. And not only did uh, people see me doing that type of stuff, they started doing it as well. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine driving past the McDonald's or anything totally covered in Esham promotions. You know, that's so wild. Exactly. Like Christmas brothers. It was, it was ridiculous. The mayor called us because I would say my brother. My brother, you know, he would do crazy stuff. He put our, our phone number on the goddamn poster. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> So the mayor's office called us, yo, y'all got to take this stuff off this, you know, McDonald's or this old abandoned church, you know, y'all vandalizing. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I was doing stuff like that. I actually went to jail for, um, it's called PMB, Post Novils in Atlanta for uh, doing the same thing. You know what I'm saying? So, man, like, that's what I mean by just working harder, you know, like the majors were out there. The majors, of, of, of course, they got deeper pockets than me. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way that I can compete with them financially. But when it came to marketing and marketing myself, I was outdoing them. 
they still copying my marketing ideas to this day. You know what I'm saying? I see people doing stuff that I did 30 years ago, and they don't even know why they're doing it, i.e. the Playboy Cardis. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's like they don't know their history, man, but everybody can get an A in history. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I don't blame them for that. But I'm just like, man, it's, it's incredible to see people doing things that I inspired them to do. I read, too, that you don't think people are overlooking you as an artist or even the acid rap slash Detroit sound, but perhaps that you aren't getting the proper credit you so deserve for the work you've put in over the past 30 plus years. Now, clearly the work in your sound has withstood the test of time. I mean, you're still going. You are a testament to that. But why is it do you feel people are reluctant to give you the proper credit? I mean, you can't write the history of rap or even music in general without a section on acid rap and the wicked shit, you know? Man, I still like Barry Sanders. You know, Barry Sanders played for the Detroit Lions. He's the greatest player in the NFL to me. You know what I mean? But he never won a Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. I feel like I put up excellent numbers for the team. You know what I mean? But I never won a Super Bowl. And then, you know, with the um, the old beef that is over with, with Eminem, Shady Records, and all those guys, there was a lot of venom and a lot of hate put on my name as an independent artist. And these major record companies was trying to silence me. Mm -hmm. I don't say nothing about them guys now. You know, I wish them well, you know, and all that stuff. But like I say, Eminem, when he first came out, was like, I'm a cross between Manson, Isham, and Ozzy. He didn't say, I'm a cross between Manson, Dr. Dre, and Ozzy. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was just, you know, it was his way of trying to um, pay homage to me. But after he did that, I don't know why. You know, you somebody would have to ask him about that. Like, man, why do you, you know what I'm saying? What's going on? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I just think it's the overall, I was younger. I was a hothead back then. A lot of people in his crew or their crew, you know, they were hotheads. And I couldn't get along with them. You know what I'm saying? So that's, right. I don't know, man. I couldn't tell you why people try to overlook the history. But one thing I could tell you is they cannot rewrite the history. Because before me, it was nothing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. They could. They could come out, you know, they could be like, oh, yeah, we doing it. You know, we, we're streaming. So somebody stream a million a million streams, that's only $1,500. Yeah. That's 150 records. Right. I used to sell 150 records out my trunk. You know what I'm saying? I used to sell 10,000 records a day. So I'm just like, the numbers ain't adding up. You know what I'm saying? So for as much as somebody streamed millions and millions of streams, if I went back and that was calculate my record sales, it would equal to that same amount, or if not more, like financially. Like, I just think they um, they took the value out of music when they did that, man. It's just like art. You know, you, you devalue the Mona Lisa by doing that. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever the case may be. So they, they took the value out of music with doing all that crazy stuff. Isham is my guest today on Massacre Radio. You know, Isham, you and this radio program have two common threads. We've had on numerous members from the band Acid Witch on the show, and I know one of their drummers drums for you. Yeah, Phil. Phil Warren. He's a great guy. And, uh, yeah, he plays in a lot of rock and roll bands. And um, me and him actually made a punk rock record together, and he played on my new album. But I just got mad respect for the scene, the punk rock scene, and just all type of people like that because I get it, man. You know, it's hard work. You know, you got to bring your Marshall stacks in there. You got to load all your equipment in and load it out. Like, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate the hard work that uh, punk rockers put in, uh, you know, just going to gigs and doing it. So I'm all down with that. And I know you also did some work with Cool Keith back in the day on his Spank Master album. And we actually had Cool Keith right here on the show as well. So I got to ask, I know that was 20 plus years ago, but what was it like working with another pioneer like Cool Keith? Yeah, that was my, that was my company. Yeah. Really? <laughs> 
Really, I put that record out. That was, yeah. Oh, I, I had cool no idea. Record, I put it out. I, I had no yeah, idea. man. <laughs> wow, I didn't. Yeah, I cool Keith out like that. For sure. We went on tour and stuff. Like, you know, that's when I, I was trying to do stuff, man. I was helping people. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the music business has hardened me a little bit. You know, I still help people who deserve to be helped. Not saying that about Keith. Keith uh, uh, deserves to be helped. But it's just a little harder for me to do that with uh, the state of music now. You know what I'm saying? Just, I don't know. People don't respect their heroes, man. Or they don't respect the people that come before them. And it's a shame, man. You know, it's just like, wow. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the things that I'm doing, nobody still are doing them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Detroit is hot, but people do a concert in Detroit, right? But that's the only place they do it. Mm-hmm. I've been touring all over the world for the last 30 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. My records don't get played on the radio, but I show up in your town as a bunch of kids there singing my song. And and I, I just feel like that is the American dream. You know, in my mind, like people, like I say, people call me a legend or stuff like that. I don't feel like that because, you know, I didn't get that Super Bowl ring or whatever. You know what I mean? And what I mean by that Super Bowl ring is one of my records ain't just outright went gold or platinum. Mm-hmm. I got 30, 40 records, but they ain't went gold or platinum. I did some nice numbers on them. I made some nice money. But that's what people love to celebrate your success. And I've been successful in so many ways. And I just don't flaunt it. They don't see it like that. I'm not that type of person to be like, oh, I'm just going to have a bunch of money over here or, you know, I want to make people feel like they want to rob me. You know what I'm saying? Or just right. whatever. You know what I mean? So they can't understand how I'm still here 35 years later. But if they do a little research, they will realize that I've been selling records and doing tours, man. And just, you know, that's what it is, the music business. Let's talk about your latest album, Purgatory. It was released last year in July of 2023. How's everything been going with you since the album release? I know you said you wanted to give people time to digest it and think about it. What is some of the feedback you've got from the fans and people around you about the album now that it's been out for a bit? People really, they really like it, man. I mean, I think after... All this time, the people that I'm selling records to, they really get it, man. They get songs like Circle of Sloth, where I talk about, you know, just getting out of your laziness. And it's a real politically entertaining, very thought-provoking record to me. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's got a bunch of different kinds of music on there because I do a bunch of different kinds of music. I don't want to be put into a box. I want to show people that they can be creative and they can be original. And I still do all these things, you know, even though I can make a song like anybody, I always choose to go in there and make something that I've never heard before. You know what I'm saying? So that's just what's going on. Purgatory is out. People are are listening to it. They gravitating towards it. I just did a tour with um, Violent J and Ouija Mac. We did a three headed monster tour and um, I'm going to be going out there doing a purgatory tour pretty soon here. Well, that kind of answers my next question, because I was going to ask what's next and if you'd be focusing on another album or taking it easy. But the touring sounds great. I'd love to have you come to Cleveland and do a show sometime. Oh, yeah, man. I played Cleveland a a bunch of times, Agora, all those places, Peabody's. But um, yeah, man, pretty soon we're going to get out here and go and tour the Purgatory. I'm always working on new music, man. Like, that's just what I do. You know, I, I create songs all the time. One of my idols is Prince, you know, and I... I actually um, 
moved to Minneapolis because I was trying to connect with Prince, but he he died. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So um, that that never happened. But yeah, I'm putting out um, new music all the time, man. I digest what's in the world. Like it's a lot of crazy stuff going on with the world with the Trump and the Nikki Haley and the, you know what I'm saying? With the <laughs> yeah. it's the political state of the world. Like I feel like that's what hip hop, rap, and music was. We were news reporters. We were supposed to be reporting on this stuff, man. And I think you know I'm just one of the last true reporters of the art you know just as i'm gonna put a mirror up to society and then i'm gonna kick it back on the music if that makes sense you know i want to ask you i noticed in the music video for otb how there was a bunch of old school esham home videos it looked like you know stuff that was shot on video and it all looked really interesting is there any plans on uploading any of that footage in full i think fans aside from myself would want to check that out and the history of all of it you know catch a glimpse into what life was really all about back then you know I mean, everything's online. YouTube, you can find those those videos up there online. I actually, that was uh, probably like the first or second concert I ever had in my life, which is that footage is from. And a lot of people was there, you know. If I slowed down the tape, you would even see Eminem in that crowd. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But he didn't, he didn't have a rap record out, you know what I'm saying? And I actually met Eminem once or twice, and I might tell that story uh <laughs> later on down the line because it was crazy he probably would never tell it but one day i might tell it but um man everybody in the city was there and that, those are great times because it was the beginning and and when you see uh otb like uh it's called old thing back which is the song mm-hmm. that was just the beginning man and that's how it was and that's how it's always been up until this day you know what i'm saying like people they love the music i love to make it for them if people get ideas from the music you know i used to get offended by people copying me, you know, but my wife told me this thing. She was like, as long as you're alive, the sun is going to shine on your face first and everything else is a shadow behind you. So that's how I feel about artists who, you know, kind of like borrow and take things from me and don't give me no credit or whatever the case may be. <laughs> it's all good. I'm, I'm happy to inspire them to do something creative and not destructive. Isham has been my guest on Massacre Radio today. His new album is called Purgatory. Go check that out. The website is acidrap.com. Where else can people find you online if they so choose to? Man, I'm just all over the place. You know, I'm easy to find. Just type Isham in there. If you got a question, holler at me. I'm cool person you cool with me i'm cool with you hey and you're also a great follow on twitter by the way just the other day in fact i saw you tweet uh stop taking pictures from the titties up damn if you big you big that's cool stop fat fishing that's what i'm saying stop <laughs> fat fishing man you know what i'm saying we love you no matter what size you is you know what i'm saying real men love women of all sizes so i think a lot of women uh they too hard on themselves man with this uh unattainable unattainable body image that people put out there and um I just wanted to let them know that they was love no matter what. Isham, thank you so much for your time today on Massacre Radio. Woo! That's right. Go Lions. Massacre Radio. Well, that about does it for this installment of Massacre Radio. Thank you, as always, for joining us. And thanks again to my guest, Isham. Really wish the Lions could have got it done in the NFC Championship game. But hey, here in Cleveland, we have a saying, there's always next year. And just real quick, as a side note here, as it pertains to the Isham interview, he mentioned Hank Shockley as one of his influences production-wise. And I just have to throw this out there, because if you've never listened to the album Berserk, Berserk, Berserk by Son of Berserk, you really got to check it out. It's one of Hank Shockley's projects 
topics that nobody really talks about these days, but it's totally banging and unlike a lot of stuff that came before or since its release. But I digest. Join us next week on Massacre Radio. We're back in your face with episode 30. As always, I've been your host, Members Only Dave, and I'll talk at you next week.